0: everyone. Welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, uh, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives on urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. My name is Sullivan Meyer. Here today on the show is Matthew Iglesias. Thank you for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here. Just to introduce Matt a little bit. Um, so, Matt started blogging when he was an undergraduate at Harvard. Uh, and to my understanding is that he's basically never stopped. Uh, he's written about politics and public policy for a wide array of publications, uh, including The American Prospect, the Atlantic, the Center for American Progress, and Slate. Um, Too many. Yeah. <laughs> um, a- in 2014, Matt co-founded Vox uh, with Ezra Klein and Melissa Bell, uh, and he served there as senior correspondent until 2020, uh, at which point he started his own substack called Slow Boring. Um, at year, he also released his third book uh, called One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. Uh, and just, I believe yesterday, uh, you launched your new podcast, Bad Takes, uh, in which you, you uh, address kind of common political opinions on the internet. We're talking about takes. Oh, yeah.
1: And that are bad. Yeah. Um, discourse. To, yes, discourse. Exactly. <laughs> you know it. You know it. I can tell you're online.
0: Oh, yeah. Most unfortunately.
1: But... <laughs> that's how it should be.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think that's actually a great place to get started, because I do think that you've kind of made your brand from being online. Absolutely. Um, and so I kind of like to discuss... Um, like your relationship with social media, kind of what you get from it. Um, I've heard uh, a lot of people who I respect kind of discussing uh, social media saying that like Twitter changes the way that they think. um Tanasi Coates famously quit Twitter pretty early. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm interested, like, how does that kind of contribute uh, uh, to the way that you think about problems? Do you think it, it uh, augments... Uh, your your understanding, or is it just kind of a means of self-promotion?
1: I mean, I I really enjoy Twitter. I Mm -hmm. mean, I think it's a great way to connect with people, to learn things, to follow people. Uh, You know, it can be toxic. It can be mind-bending. I block a lot of people. I mute a lot of stuff. I think, uh, to some extent, the company has not made its tools as sort of accessible or intuitive Mm -hmm. to people as as they ought to be. Um, I think that the impact of social media, I shouldn't even say social media, of like yeah. large internet companies on the media that people don't talk about enough isn't about, you know, do you use it as a writer or an editor, but it's how does it actually alter the structure of the industry mm-hmm. where, you know, if you are writing for a free-to-read ad-supported publication mm-hmm. that needs to attract a large audience, Your job, in effect, in the modern world is you are programming for Google, Facebook, to a lesser extent, Twitter. But those platforms, I guess is the word people use, um, those are the tools of discovery. They hold the keys to the kingdom. And, you know, what you're doing is you're writing a piece because you think it will catch fire in the Google News algorithm, you know, that people are searching for you know, information about... uh, I I was actually just an example, right? Someone was telling me that there was a big controversy about uh, the late queen that was taking place on Irish Twitter. (laughs) So I wanted to learn more about that. So I put into Google, you know, Queen Elizabeth Irish Twitter. And I got all these stories, right? And so a good way to get traffic is to know a lot of people are searching for this and to write something that's optimized for it. Uh, there's different ways that you go viral on on Facebook. There's different sort of tricks and techniques to it. The algorithms change over time. But everybody writing for the free internet, that's what mm-hmm. they're programming for. And there's virtues to that. I mean, I I enjoyed some of the articles that I discovered by using Google. I I use Google Web Search every day, as I'm sure almost everyone does. Um, But it's a different way of doing journalism from traditional periodicals or from what we have in the newsletter space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's an interesting, I think, distinction that you draw there. Um, Because, you know, a lot of my friends on campus are kind of most familiar with your work for the free internet. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, as I've heard you talk about, you really orient your work, actually, maybe not towards free versus not free internet, but certainly a different model of content production that's more about systematically building up uh, an audience that returns week after week and wants to hear your thoughts on things, as opposed to kind of like pandering to the virality algorithm. Exactly.
1: So, you know, in in the newsletter industry, I mean, you have your set of subscribers. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have a, you know, there's a, a... a smaller group that pays for, you know, the members of Slow Boring. You can read all the articles, you comment, there's events. And then there's a larger group that has the free subscriptions. So Mm -hmm. you get a smaller number of emails. You can't be in the comments. You don't get the events, but but you get to read it. And so I want... And then there's people who follow me on Twitter, which is an even bigger group. So I want to move people on the funnel, right? I want to get Twitter followers to become free subscribers. Mm -hmm. I want to get free subscribers to become paid members. Uh, and I want paid members to be, uh, like what they read enough that they keep subscribing and ideally that they recommend it to friends, that they, they forward messages, that they tell people, Oh, you gotta, you gotta check this guy out. Um, podcasts, um, have, I think a similar dynamic. I mean, podcasts don't go viral, quote unquote. I mean, they hopefully launch, but what you want is the people who listen to episode one to come back and download episode two and you want a subset of them to recommend it to their friends. And that's how your audience grows over time. It's about building a sort of repeated, iterative relationship in which, you know, ideally, people who listen to this show have some trust in the people who host it and produce it. And so even if they don't know who Matthew Iglesias is, they might think, well, the guests on this show are normally interesting people. I will listen to this conversation. I think it will be interesting right that's the um, that's the way successful podcasts function, and to me that's a much more rewarding kind of work to do than to try to say, "Oh, I bet a lot of people are going to be searching for uh, stuff about the queen. you know let me let me go write something
0: yeah, absolutely um, and so I guess my question for that uh I think especially among Traditional media. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like intentional uh, thought, maybe even navel gazing, kind of about the role of media in democracy, mm-hmm. the implications for the internet and social media, and like changing the media landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you're deciding what media to put out there, are you thinking that about about that stuff? The
1: ones that are good, good for democracy. All my media is pro democracy. <laughs> if you support democracy, you have to subscribe uh, to my to my thing. No, I mean. So there's a kind of quintessential second half of the 20th century media dynamic that, you know, people who are a little bit older than me um, really, really grew up with and that I remember and that people your age did not experience at all. Um, And so it's like when I was a little kid and not like a real media consumer, but the way things worked was there was... um, three broadcast television networks, and they dominated the market share for video. And they all, at the behest of the FCC, put on very sort of earnest, down-the-line news reports every night. And New York, where I grew up, had like three newspapers, but a normal American city would have just one newspaper. And so, you know, you're in St. Louis, and the goal of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch is to be earnest and high-minded and inoffensive, right? You know, the the question was, would you be a responsible citizen of greater St. Louis and subscribe to the newspaper? Or would you just not subscribe? They didn't compete with anyone. They competed with non-consumption. So newspapers and television tried not to piss people off. They were a little bit boring. They were a little bit staid. And critics, you know, Noam Chomsky writes his book on manufacturing consent uh, in the 80s, you know, as in fact this dynamic was going out. And it was like, well, look, there's this kind of hegemonic perspective that the media can create, can can force on people, right? And so, you know, the media decides that uh, George McGovern is too extreme, and so he is. But the media decides that Nixon is guilty. And so he's got to go. And there is a certain way in which that media landscape was very supportive of America's democratic institutions. You know, at least there was a there was a deep and profound interplay. But it's worth remembering that Chomsky criticism, right, at the time that that hegemonic media perspective existed, a lot of people found it to be very anti-democratic. They felt that a small number of corporate media elites were controlling the discourse we got cable news, we got AM talk radio, we eventually got the internet. It's completely blown that up. We now have this very competitive, very open media landscape in which you can have the opposite problem, right? After the 2020 election, Fox News initially tries to report that Trump lost. But um, Newsmax and OANN, they report that no, Trump's right, that the election was stolen. You can see on the charts, Fox starts bleeding market share because viewers are migrating uh, to Newsmax and OANN. So Fox does what any self-respecting business would do, and it starts giving the people what they want, because Fox has better production values than Newsmax. People like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity more than they like the Newsmax hosts. And so if they will just say the right things, they get their audience back. Now, I think we would say in this case that that is bad for democracy, right? That the old less open media space, the responsible media elites would have come together. Rachel Maddow and Tucker Carlson and John King would all be like, you know what, Donald Trump lost this election. Rachel can be happy and Tucker can be sad. And you know, now Tucker's going to have a conversation about how does the GOP do better next time. But we're not going to go down this like rabbit hole of conspiracies and so on and so forth. So there's that that weakness of a competitive environment, right? We can't create a shared reality. At the same time, you know, uh, when I was in college, the media was stronger than it is today and was very bought in on the idea that Iraq had an advanced weapons of mass destruction program. And, you know, uh, the Bush administration was able to manipulate its media coverage in a way that I don't think a contemporary administration would be able to. To pull off, just because there was an audience, you know, uh, left-wing people were very angry at the New York Times during their coverage of the Iraq War, but there was no Newsmax for them to gravitate toward. The New York Times continued to be the thing that highbrow liberal people read. They were just angry, and we had this war, and and it was very bad. Um, so we have a more open media than we used to, um, and it it threatens to destabilize our institutions in a profound way. But I think it's important to remember that when we had the less competitive media space, that seemed very undemocratic.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, That's a long answer. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, And so you see yourself as kind of slotting in as kind of alternative to... You know larger more mainstream as part of that kind of proliferation of like alternatives
1: yeah i mean you know i am trying to provide uh something that is a little bit less um how do i say less hysterical because that's a that's a that's a caustic term but is less driven by you know emotion and these kind of platform programming needs um It's frankly a little bit more moderate than a lot of what you get out of political media these days. Uh, But most of all, that is just nichier, you know, like I go really long and deep on aspects of housing and transportation policy that I think are interesting and that my readers think are interesting. But I do it with the knowledge. If you were going to ask like, look, is the typical person going to find this interesting? The answer is no. You know, if somebody, people every time I'm introduced to like, ha, 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 slow boring, that's your name, is a, is a reference to a Max Weber essay for those who don't know. But the point is, um, I can make a lot of money with a very tiny fraction of the American audience uh, reading it, which means I can do something that's much more unique and is much more interesting to those people than anything Walter Cronkite ever could have done is And but it does mean that the media can't um, make things happen the way like Nixon resigned because everybody just agreed. They were like, oh, this presentation by the Watergate committee, like it was very persuasive. You know, like this guy's got to go. And it's hard to exercise that kind of power now. And it's interesting to me that we've gone from seeing that media power as undemocratic to seeing it as actually a a bulwark of democracy. But that's just to say, you know, there's a complicated interplay between formal political institutions and other institutions of society. And it's always evolving. I mean, that nonpartisan media of the second half of the 20th century was very aberrational. Uh, 19th century media was very partisan. Um, Early 20th century media was a bit of a a mix, maybe more like today's landscape. But there's just, there's always, there's always change. Paul Starr is a professor here, I think. He has a great book um, called The Invention of the Media. And it goes through the whole history of pre World War II American media. And I can't summarize the book uh, except to say that um, a lot of different things happened. And like it was just different at different points in time. And technology and policy and economics are always changing. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I I think you highlight a good point there. which is that the audience that you're writing for now are folks that look a lot like you and I. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they graduate from, you know, college. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're typically like higher income. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're kind of like the <laughs> the PMC class. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, like, you do see kind of a, a the American audience kind of fracturing mm-hmm. um, where it's like, you know, Previously, people were maybe choosing uh, between watching ABC or NBC, Mm -hmm. but like at six PM, the nightly news was on Mm -hmm. on all of the all three stations, you know. Um, And it's like now I'm choosing between your newsletter and like straight up coverage from the New York Times. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's like a different, you know, question of audience. You know what I mean? And who you're selling to.
1: well, but I mean, so you're also raising the question of, right, the one thing is like media consumption habits of the kind of upscale sure. professionals, right? Yeah. The other is um, true mass media, right, which yeah. was television rather than print newspapers. And today, um, today that audience is probably not consuming news at all yeah. because the way classical television worked was that at 7 p.m., there were only three television stations and they all ran the news at the same time right? Because there wasn't a formal law that said you can't defect and just put on a sitcom on the nightly news. But everyone's understanding was that the FCC would do something mm-hmm. if you tried to not do news, right? But that has been destabilized. So it's not like, you know, somebody in the bottom third of the political interest uh, distribution is like getting their news from TikTok. Mm-hmm. They're Using TikTok, but they're not getting news on TikTok. They're just not getting news, right? Anywhere. Um, or maybe it's just coming around ambiently because, you know, a comedian they like mentions a political topic or a sports figure or a celebrity they follow says something. But we now allow what we allowed pre-television, which is for people to live lives that are just completely innocent of the news
0: well right like the news is kind of competing against just other kinds of media not other kinds of news right um which i think gets to an interesting point you know i think twitter in general is pulling from our kind of audience Uh um but like you know you're writing for that kind of audience and more importantly like you kind of write more recently uh uh, about the importance of elite decision making Mm -hmm. and kind of political direction, especially in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Uh you've written about how it's not popular opinion that's determining like climate action, for instance, but kind of, you know, buy-in at the elite levels of the party, mm-hmm. donor class. Um and it feels like you are writing to them. Mm-hmm. But I'd say another through line in your writing is like, well, let's go back to the polls. Let's go back to what's popular. Most Americans are moderate. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of an interesting kind of like mediator position that you have there. And I wonder if you've kind of like reflected about that intentionally.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I I think that I have always, you know, primarily I got my start working for a magazine called The American Prospect, mm-hmm. which was part of a, a whole genre of publications that sort of used to be a big deal. And I mean, with these kind of like small circulation, D.C.-based magazines that focused on policy and politics for... Not just for quote unquote elites, but for people who were super duper interested, mm-hmm. right, in in these kind of things, which included a lot of people who lived and worked in D.C. But also, when I was a teenager, like I would read The Nation and National Review and The American Prospect in my high school library, and then and then at the the Kirkland House Library in, in college, and then on the internet, because I was really interested in politics. I wanted a deeper level of politics journalism than you got in sort of mainstream news. And that's always the kind of place that I have worked for and the kind of audience that I've cultivated, which is a mix of, you know, high-level and low-level decision makers in D.C., but also people who work in policy-relevant areas around the country, students who are interested in these subjects and might want to get, you know, into them. And that's because I'm i a writer by trade is what I think I'm good at doing, but I'm a person who's genuinely interested in politics, right? Like if the breaks had gone a little bit differently for me in my career, I would be working in the politics and policy space in some non-journalism capacity, probably doing a lot of written work, you know, writing reports or speeches or something like that. There's no, it's a much more distant possible universe in which I'm like. A journalist covering hockey, right? Whereas there's some people who are like journalists first, and they they travel beats and and subjects. But like I'm a politics guy. I'm a I'm a DC guy. I'm I'm committed to the the topic, to the issues more so than to like journalism as a as an idea or an occupation. So I'm interested in writing. You know for influential people and trying to be an influential person myself um, while at the same time recognizing that there's tremendous value. I was um, an intern in in Chuck Schumer's office and I worked for his then communications director, uh, Bradley Tusk, who's now he's got a good podcast, actually. Um, And one of the things Bradley, you know, always impressed on me is that, look, the people who work on this staff, they care a lot about what happens on CNN and what gets into roll call. Uh but Chuck's constituents who are persuadable, they care about what goes on like the local news in Rochester between sports scores and the weather, right? And like we need to communicate through those mass communications channels. And I totally believe in that. Like I agree with that. I I would advise all politicians like don't talk to me. Like don't don't spend your time on this. Like try to get on local sports radio and just like talk about the NFL and make people think you're a cool guy who cares about football. And then like mention one bill that you're trying to do, right? Like that's, that's how you communicate with persuadable voters. It's like talk to people who don't care that much about politics, but Mm -hmm. I care a lot about politics. So I want to talk to other people who care about politics and build a career and a business that supports that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to switch directions, uh, a little bit. Um, and kind of talk about your outlook on democracy. You know, you've now been in D.C. for... I'm for it. Yes. Democracy is okay. good.
1: No coup. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, but, you know, I was kind of looking through some of your older work. Yeah. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, not, not that old. Don't worry. It's like Vox era <laughs> stuff. Um, and there's some stuff that you write kind of near the end of the Obama administration, beginning of the Trump administration, that... Is pretty like pessimistic yes. about democracy. Um, you talk about kind of like the ramifications of constitutional hardball between mm-hmm. parties, um, kind of a spiraling partisanship. Um, you know, in the years since, <laughs> through some of the most turbulent years of democracy that we've certainly experienced, it seems like you're now pretty uh, 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 bullish on the concept of America overall. I mean, certainly you wrote a power, yeah. a, a book about I, I, expanding. I, I,
1: I think this is, I've been on a little bit of a different trajectory sure. for many people. The Obama years mm-hmm. made me very pessimistic about American political institutions um, because there was such a volume of sincerely principled disagreement between Obama and Paul Ryan. And the government was like constantly at these crisis points, actually. And both Congress and the president were making these kind of loopy power grabs around the debt ceiling, around immigration enforcement, and, and things like that. Um, what's happened under Trump and under Biden is that politics has become much like zanier. And I don't want to downplay it. Like people, a mob of people actually stormed the Capitol, and and police officers were severely injured, and it's really disgusting, awful stuff. But the policy-making gaps have become narrower, right? Trump did the CARES Act in cooperation with Nancy Pelosi. Biden is getting, like, savaged by Republicans for his immigration policy, but his immigration policy is actually not that different from Trump's. Whereas Obama and Trump was nine day, right? Trade, um... Biden and Trump have been pretty close Um, on infrastructure. We had a big bipartisan bill. We had a bipartisan gun bill. We had a bipartisan bill on on semiconductors and, and competition with China. Right. So the the Madisonian political system is working more closer to how it's supposed to than it did in the Obama era. And something that I think is interesting is like. Highbrow people really hate Donald Trump, which I sympathize with because I think he was terrible. But I also thought George W. Bush was terrible, but he was much more like uh, tolerated in highbrow circles. And I think all the time it's like, what if it came out one day that Donald Trump had the NSA illegally harvesting every telephone call in America? Because Bush did that. What if it came out that Trump was operating a global network of secret prisons in which people were being illegally tortured? Because Bush did that, right? Bush had the CIA kidnap a guy off the streets of Italy and be sent to Assad's Syria to be tortured by the secret police. (laughs) And Trump felt like more of a three alarm emergency to people. Because the media covered it as a three-alarm emergency, but that's actually better, right? Like Trump was facing a lot of scrutiny, which is appropriate scrutiny. I'm not one of these people who's like, "Oh my God, they were so unfair to Trump," right? But like the coverage of Trump was like was really tough. People were really watching him. Um, things I think were worse uh, under the prior Republican administration, who was doing like. I don't know to say, like, who's worse, who's better, but shady stuff was going down and it was happening with very minimal scrutiny, um, which I think was really bad. And then under Obama, we didn't have quite the same level of shadiness, but we had really extreme constitutional hardball moves. You know, we had a complete blockade of his appointments uh, to the federal judiciary, to then like Harry Reid, just breaking the rules of the Senate to, to change it. Um there was like all kinds of of craziness sort of happening whereas now I do think that we are moving closer to a kind of sane policy debate under Biden and then the question becomes can we neutralize and marginalize these kind of election denier people and can we um calm people down right there was this real belief after 2012 that was celebrated on the left and feared on the right. That immigration and demographic change were going to somehow like give Democrats a permanent victory, and then encourage Republicans to be like really, really terrified. Um, and I just like want everyone to see that like if Republicans can be competitive with Latino voters in Texas and New Mexico and Arizona, which it seems like they can, it's like there is no demographic. Destiny for Democrats. But there's also no need for Republicans to be like panicking. It's just normal stuff. And you got to go to the voters and, you know, they got what they wanted on Roe versus Wade. But then it turned out the public was like, whoa, your substantive views on abortion seem extreme and scary. And now Republicans are like acknowledging that they got into a lot of electoral hot water. And I don't know where they're going to come out on the other side of it, but like there's only one correct answer to this dilemma which is like take a position on abortion that's more popular. And then Democrats will be in the hot seat because they have some extreme views and they got to moderate them too. And like that, that's democracy. is like activists giving up on life and pandering to the median voter. And I think that we're actually getting closer to that.
0: Interesting. Okay. Well, I think implicit to that is an idea that Policy is really driving political opinion yeah uh which is it's a
1: very unfashionable opinion exactly
0: um is that something that you like can generally believe like you know we have kind of talked about the dissolution of the media landscape as it existed, uh, and with that, you lose a lot of kind of uh uh technical detailed reporting on policy um reaching like you said the median voter um You know, do you think it is reaching them somehow? Uh, And if so, like how and how are they processing that?
1: I mean, I I do think that these things more or less uh, reach voters. I mean, obviously, 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 there's more to electoral politics than policy. But I think that this has become an overstated piece of conventional wisdom. I mean, I I really recommend there's a new paper, um, Anthony Fowler, Seth Hill, Jeffrey Lewis, Chris Tosanovich, Lynn Vavrek, and Christopher Warshaw um, did together, and it's called Moderates. Um, And this paper is dedicated to a a larger project of what what I like to think of as, as rediscovering the wisdom of the ancients. And they go through it and they say, look, it's not that many people who hold like sincerely moderate policy views, but it's a healthy, it's millions of people and their choices between the candidates tends to swing elections. Um, David Brookman has a paper that came out a few years ago that's looking at the question of moderates from a slightly different direction. And he shows, you know, look, a lot of people um, are sort of scattershot and might be like mostly conservative, but have a couple of left-wing opinions or vice versa. Uh, but he shows that which he calls issue congruence, which is like agreeing with the politician about things, is a big driver of vote choices. And you can see that, you know, with um, Obama to Trump, right? There's a swath of people who say that everybody should have health care guaranteed by the government and who also are against immigration. Obama won most of those people. And then Trump won most of them. And like, why did Trump win most of them? Well, he got everybody to talk a lot about immigration and he at least hid his views on healthcare. Then he became president and he tried to take all these people's healthcare away. And there was a huge electoral backlash to him. But then after the midterms, Trump like stopped trying to take people's healthcare away. And he won some of those people back and he did better in 2020 than he did in 2018. And I think every time you look at it, I mean, you see people who were like, Matt, you're so crazy. You know, politics isn't about policy." As soon as Dobbs came down, they were like, oh yeah, we're going to get Republicans on abortion. And so I'm like, well, what were we actually disagreeing? Uh, You know, that's a complicated question. Um, But I just think you clearly see there are these big vote moves when the policy debate changes. Um, And, you know, people don't care about that many issues. There aren't that many different issues in the news at any given time. But, you know, again, it's not a coincidence that in 2012, Obama was the outsourcing is bad candidate and Mitt Romney was the evil outsourcer and then you put in Trump and you put in Hillary and Hillary and Bill Clinton did NAFTA and Trump is against outsourcing and a lot of people in the Midwest they flip sides on the basis of that and I think that the people who are very attentive to politics actually develop a blind spot about this that like everybody I know who worked for Hillary also loved Obama and so like To them, it's like inconceivable that a person could be like, but wait, Obama deported a record number of people and he lambasted his opponent for outsourcing jobs, whereas Hillary Clinton ran as a pro-immigration, pro-trade candidate. And people can't see, they can't imagine the universe in which somebody would like view these two people so differently. Or if they do view them so differently, it must be sexism. But like they took different positions on the issues and that mattered. It mattered to people. It just happens to be the case that like most people who work in Democratic Party politics professionally don't have strong convictions about trade policy. And so they just like go along with whatever the party leadership wants to do at one time or another uh, because professional Democrats these days are highly motivated by climate change um, and sort of anti-racism type issues. But lots of their voters aren't necessarily motivated by those issues. Um, And they can lose sight of it, right? That like Democrats for 10 years were like the healthcare, healthcare, healthcare party. And like now under Biden, it's like, well, we don't talk about that
0: anymore. But like that impacts people. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Uh, So I mean, kind of talking about that, you know, you have identified a part of the Democratic Party or a part of the platform mm-hmm. that elites and you know, decision makers are very interested in. Do you kind of see your role to some extent when you're writing as like intervening and saying like, hey, here's like a negative space in your platform where the polling indicates <laughs> that people like think a certain way. I'm going to point this out to you. And also, I think it's a good idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, to an extent, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I do different kinds of things. Sure. I do some like, here's a good idea. Here's something people care yeah. about. I mean, I, I mean, I try to do different stuff. But like one thing, I guess, like the thing that I want to remind people of is there's a certain there's like a constellation of advocacy groups in Washington, D.C. Um, and there's lots and lots of advocacy groups, but some of them are like really big and important. And what determines how big and important your advocacy group is, is the decision making of a handful of foundations and donors. And that's fine. It is what it is. But it's a huge mistake as a professional to think that that is reality, right? Like people are spending money to try to shape our understanding of the issue landscape. Um, And so, for example, something Democrats will talk about every once in a while is they'll say, well, we should expand Social Security. We should make Social Security benefits more generous, And the reason they say that is it's insanely popular. Um, But as it happens, like, there is no actual effort to expand Social Security benefits, right? Like, as an observer of the DCC, like, I can tell you, like, there are, it's called issue roundtables, right, that exist. And that, like, different funders and recipients of money, like, come together and they talk about issues and they talk about strategy and what we're going to do and prioritization. And there is no Issue Roundtable dedicated to expanding Social Security. There are no meetings about it. Nobody is working on it. It's nobody's job at CAP or CB. No, there are people who cover Social Security. Like, don't yell at me. But like, there was a debate as to, are we going to do climate change or are we going to do family? It was called the care agenda. And, and there was a climate agenda. And like, are we going to do one or the other? or Are we going to do both? Right. And like, that's, that's what was in the mix. And, you know, I think it behooves politicians. One of the things Trump did was he just brushed off the Republican group's infrastructure. He was like, I'm famous, so people will pay attention to what I say. So if I say things that people like, they will just vote for me, right? And um, other people, you don't need to be Donald Trump to play that game, right? Like, if you just said, you know what? I'm prioritizing these issues that I think matter to the voters and I'm not prioritizing the issues that matter to the groups. Like they can't stop you. They have no real power. It's, it's a total illusion. Mm-hmm.
0: But you know, uh, uh, one thing that you've spoken about in kind of democratic administrations is that, uh, uh, Democrats need to come into power mm-hmm. having like a plan for policymaking. Yes. Cause you only have like, Eighteen months to make Absolutely. policy.
1: That's what elites are here for,
0: right? Exactly, a- and so that means that Trump had to enter with some kind of policy position, or he just kind of adopted the elite position in the mm-hmm. Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which seems to have happened. So, yeah, I guess that's an, like an interesting. Uh, no, 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 I mean I agree.
1: Out. I mean, there's a you know, governing is its own. Yeah, right. Is its own beast, sure. and like there's yes, I mean there's a reason to fund these groups and to do work, and you yeah. know ultimately. A climate bill got done mm-hmm. in part because, um, the policy work that Leah Stokes and other people did over mm. the years on climate, um, was good. It was good work. Um, Ron Wyden has been working on this for a long time. People have been dialoguing with Joe Manchin and they had this, um, almost onion peel like climate agenda. So, Things that they were really hoping to do, like the clean energy payment program, like that wound up not happening, but they had like, well, if we can't do that, let's do this. If we can't do that, let's do this. Right. right? And so, you know, it was relatively late in the game that people start bending my ear about like, Matt, you have to understand why direct payments as part of a clean energy tax credit is an important reform. Right. And I think I never wrote that column because it's so fucking boring, but They understood that it was important, right? And at the end of the day, they, like, got Manchin to agree that direct payments are okay. And they also understood in a deep way that Manchin cares a lot about um, hydrogen, right? So, Joe Manchin believes, rightly or wrongly, that um, this electric vehicle stuff is, like, the wrong direction to go and that the real future of American transportation is liquid hydrogen. Um, and he likes that because right now, the most effective way to make liquid hydrogen is to burn natural gas. And West Virginia has a lot of natural gas, but doesn't have a lot of gas export capacity. So he wants to burn natural gas and make hydrogen fuel vehicles that way. And then he wants to tell people in the long run, you can make hydrogen with nuclear or with clean uh, renewables, whatever. And this is going to be the thing. Um environmentalists like they disagree with them. They, they don't think that's right um and a lot of them hate this idea but you know what what wyden and schumer and biden ultimately were able to do was be like look it doesn't matter like give joe manchin what he wants right in in the hydrogen space and if we're right and it doesn't work out there's no real loss here. like maybe we wasted some money but like not that much because the money only gets spent if the hydrogen gets made." And that's just like, that's good politics, right? Whereas on child tax credit, I think the advocate's plan was, we're going to get this into the American Rescue Plan and everyone's going to love it and then they're going to expand it. And when it turned out that like, Manchin didn't like the idea and also it was like tolerated by the public but not celebrated, they didn't have a plan B. They didn't have a real understanding of like, what are Mansion's bottom lines? What's something that is a third the cost but does half as much good, right? They didn't it's hard. It's hard. you know, I I don't want to like dunk on people because it's like genuinely difficult to do this stuff, but that is why the work needs to be done. And it's the same with TCJA. I mean, people forget this, but Dave Dave Camp's original idea was this destination-based um uh destination-based cash flow tax. Um which, like, that was his idea for tax reform, and he put it out there, and retailers were like, fuck no, do not do that. And it completely died. But he had more plans, and, like, that's why he was able to get a business tax cut passed, because he he had, like, thought a lot about that space.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that suggests something interesting about, like, the evolution of party platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, now TCGA is, like, a part of the Republican platform and, like, mm-hmm. defending... It's tax cuts are an important part, even though that's not how they really entered that yep. governing cycle. Um, and so I think, like, with that evolution in mind, I'd be interested to hear where you think kind of bidenomics and you know su- supply side liberalism comes from, because uh, it is rooted a lot in like people like having a lot of cheap things, mm-hmm. uh, and it wound up manifesting the IRA because that's like what they could get through Congress, mm-hmm. and so like. You know, to what extent do you see that kind of like, uh, uh, you know, trend in liberal media policy theory as being like a product of what is politically feasible and just like what we could like lean back on?
1: Well, I I think you know, so I I think there's like a a a meme in the right. true sense, right? Of Supply side. So Janet Yellen called it modern supply side economics. Mm -hmm. Um, Derek Thompson stole abundance agenda from me and I, and I want it back. (laughs) Um, Ezra Klein called it supply side progressivism, Mm -hmm. which um, I don't like the word progressivism. Um, I would say there's a progressive supply side agenda. There's an abundance agenda. Um, So that's like a freestanding idea that some columnists came up with um, because it sounds cool and because it, meets the needs. Because a lot of us, right, guys my age, Ezra's age, Derek's age, we cut our teeth in the depths of the Great Recession when it was like demand, 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 demand. And now we are trying to say, okay, that phase of our lives is done as writers because that phase of the country is done and it is time for a pivot. So that's persuasive and it has a lot of like mimetic power. Uh, When something like that gets out there, what starts happening is um, everyone who has something they want to do tries to kind of hop on the bandwagon, right? So the Biden administration will say, oh, inflation after American Rescue Plan is really about supply chain bottlenecks. So we're doing all this work on the ports. Um, Or, you know, Janet Yellen will say... Um okay, you know, w- this is a, a supply side focused agenda and people need to pay more attention to all the workforce development aspects of inflation reduction act, right? But that's really like just like back formation, right? Like they're just highlighting the supply side aspects of things that they actually just want to do. The only area in which I would say Biden has like genuinely embraced um supply side policy is two. I mean, one is energy, right? He has moved from uh, the Obama-era pricing paradigm to one that is focused on increasing the supply of zero carbon electricity. Uh, The other is that they are trying to move toward um, deregulation of land use and housing production. There's limited federal tools in that arsenal, although I have to point out that um, uh, they could amend the HUD code and they have significant discretionary authority over manufactured housing and they should use it. But, you know, they've like talked a lot about ports, but they haven't moved to waive the Jones Act. They haven't engaged Mike Lee with uh, trying to repeal the Dredge Act. There's like all this stuff that's constraining ports, but it's mostly stuff that labor unions like. And Joe Biden is a big ally to labor. Um, And, you know, that's fine. But it's much closer to conventional liberal interest group politics than to a genuine change of heart just as republicans under trump they made some policy changes on trade especially but they mostly kept the bush economic agenda but like called it like this new populism biden's economic agenda it's not identical to obama's um but it's similar there's a close family resemblance and they're deploying some new concepts um and in this case like I think they should they should go further. You know, they should they should really dig
0: it. Gotcha. Uh, So I I think this relates back to your discussion of like how politics has changed since the Obama era Mm -hmm. where there's like a lot of constitutional hardball about these like super technocratic, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, not kitchen table governmental issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know if you really wanted to lean into this idea that we're, like, entering a new economic era, you could be like, that is, like, the death throes of ne- neoliberalism mm-hmm. there, uh, you know, where it's, like, we're battling over regulation and cap-and-trade and, cap and, and Waxman-Markey, Mar- uh, um, and now we've gone somewhere new. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's true? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, like, how does that relate back to our idea that, like, Maybe we're entering some kind of like pre-radio mass, mass media political environment.
1: Well, um, look, I mean, people obviously have a lot of interest yeah. in fighting about certain, um, I would say like politics adjacent topics that have limited actual policy. Mm-hmm. Content. Like uh, earlier this morning, I saw um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, yeah. you know, who was the, the lead editor of 1690 Project. She was like going nuclear at some conservatives who she felt were downplaying the profitability of the slave trade under the British Empire. And then various conservatives were going nuclear at her over the same like laundry list of like haterade. They've been directing her way for two years now. And so to say, well, people are really fired up about 18th century economic history Like, well, that's not right. That's not what they're fired up about, right? They're fired up about politics, right? About racial politics. Like, that's what they're doing. But also, it's like, well, what is the issue that they are fired up about, right? And it's like, well, okay, I mean, slavery was abolished, like, quite some time ago. And uh, fortunately, um, the British colonial empire has also been unwound quite some time ago. Um, The actual literal policy issue that we are arguing about is whether or not a 1619 project derived curriculum done by the Pew or Knight Foundation or something can or can't be used in like middle schools, which is not that important a question. Like compared to like an Obama versus Paul Ryan debate about like, should there be Medicare Right. Like this is just like way more dollars and people's like practical lives. Right. Like we're going to continue to live in a country where some people are exposed to uh, left wing historians takes on the nature of the 18th century economy and where most people are also exposed to patriotic Americana. Like, I just feel really confident that over the next 50 years, both of those things are going to continue to be like forces in our culture. Um And to the extent that we're having, like, impassioned arguments about those kind of things, I think it actually opens up space for members of Congress to do a lot of what they've been doing this year, which is like, let's work out a compromise on uh, how to do industrial policy for microchips, right? Like, let's, let's, like, do some legislating and then we can tweet at each other about, um, you know... uh, Oh, should you put up a flag that's like the American flag but it's black but it has one line that's blue. Right? That's an issue. That really stirs up some shit, right? But like what is the like what is the issue there? Um we had a bipartisan criminal justice reform bill pass under Donald Trump. Uh under Biden there was almost one, but it broke down ultimately because um Tim Scott was willing to do some reforms. But he wasn't willing to reform um, uh, what's it called? Qualified immunity for police officers. And Cory Booker said he didn't want to lend his imprimatur to a bipartisan reform bill that was so weak as that. So it does And so, you know, Senator Booker knows what he's doing. But he, he could have had a police reform bill that did something. But he decided he would rather have nothing that, than do it. And he might reconsider that view. Um, But again, like that's policy, right? That's not like flags. And there was willingness. They were close to a deal and they decided not to do a deal and a deal might come back. I mean, I think if Republicans do poorly in the Senate elections, um, that that bill will probably come back, that they'll probably have a little more wiggle on it. Uh, if they do well, you know, then it won't. Um, even on abortion, I feel like, uh, the, uh, two contending sides are actually, um, getting, getting, they're, they're exploring the parameters of what a compromise would look like, Mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, like Lindsey Graham is saying, uh, well, abortion should be strictly illegal after 15 weeks and then states can make it more illegal than that. And Tim Kaine has a bill that's like, abortion has to be strictly legal up until 15 weeks. And then states can make it more liberal than that, yeah. right? And so, if you if you see what Lindsey Graham thinks is the most politically defensible conservative position, and what Tim Kaine thinks is the most politically defensible liberal position, it's, like, really clear how you could synthesize those into a compromise. Like, right now, they don't want to, so they're not going to. Um, but, you know, that's just because the, the issue's not ripe. Okay.
0: Um, let me try a narrative on that, maybe. Yeah. Um... So, it seems like a lot of, like, media coverage and news is super noisy about, like, social issues. Yep. Um, like, Nicole Hannah-Jones makes a lot of news on... But Twitter. I just
1: don't even want to say social issues, right? Because, like, right. you sometimes have an issue. Like, yeah. Like, immigration policy is sure. an issue. But it's just, like, is Nicole Hannah-Jones overemphasizing the role of slavery in the calculus of American revolutionaries. It's like an interesting subject. Right. But it's like not a policy issue at all. Like it's just people talking.
0: Yeah. So, but like the noise that exists in the media landscape does seem to be like kind of barometrically determining how people are voting and how people are are feeling about politics on like a, you know, day by day, what is Joe Biden's approval Mm -hmm. rating basis. But then it seems also like there is like a policy-making consensus that kind of like has slowly shifted over the last 10 years so that we can get a bunch of bipartisan bills done on infrastructure and industrial policy and science technology. Um, and that is also based on polling. Or at least is it seems like it is, is based on like uh, uh what is popular among American people. Like I like getting things that are cheap you know what i mean and i like having manufacturing jobs in the united states and so it seems like there's like some kind of like hard voting who determines who's in power um and that's based a lot on like what is noisy right now and there's a a, a soft voting that's like what are the people in power doing that is kind of like a slower churn that occurs kind of like over the course of a decade or two decades
1: yeah but i i just think that there's also i mean I think that people really thought that free trade with China would promote political liberalization Mm. in China, and that therefore it was really good, and that the kind of people asking for trade protection were, um, you know, being selfish and small-minded, and Mm. that that's why we had trade policies that we had for a while. And then Trump was kind of this like spectacular exclamation point, but if Trump had never happened. It was still true that by 2015, 2016, Obama was shifting his trade policy to emphasize like regional competition blocks. Um, it was already the case that Republicans were turning against trans-Pacific partnership and that congressional Democrats never liked it. Um, you know, there's been a change. of My mind has changed. Like many people's mind has just changed about like China policy on the merits. And I think that like that has driven a renewed interest in industrial policy and in many other kinds of things that um, the fighting is more entertaining. So whatever it is people are fighting about, I think will tend to get attention. And what people agree on is not going to be electorally decisive because because they agree. And it's not that um, fun, you know, as coverage, right? So like Sean Hannity is not going to do a segment that's like, uh, you know, I guess Biden and I kind of agree on China. And also, you know, back when Obama was doing this differently, I kind of agreed with him back then, too. And our minds all just changed because we listened to facts and evidence, right? He's if he does a segment on Biden and China trade, it's going to be about how like Hunter Biden is corrupt or about how it's hypocritical of Biden to agree with Trump or or something else. But that's just like. That's business, right? Like the facts, which I think Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow would agree on is that like both parties have become more skeptical of China and they themselves as television hosts have also become more skeptical of China. And that's because like actual things happened in China that like changed our minds because we're actually not like as stupid as we sometimes uh, pretend to be for you know, media performance purposes.
0: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, Well, I think that's a good place to leave off our political discussion. I want to be mindful of your time. Yeah. Um, So just, you know, the last kind of thing I want to hit on, you know, you were a college student at Harvard (laughs) at one point. Um, uh, uh, And so, you know, for the benefit of our college students, I'd like to just kind of like talk to you. About the outlook coming out of college now. Yeah. I think um, on Princeton, uh, there is kind of a lot of like, not necessarily hate, uh, but kind of like reproachment towards like people going into like IB, Mm -hmm. finance, consulting. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, A, I'd like to hear your thoughts about that. And then B, like if you were to kind of point a college student who's like, just generally interested in like analytical thinking, having a stimulating job with high impact, where should they go look for a job? What field, what kind of company, that kind of stuff?
1: Well, I, so here's the main thing I would say. You know, you get to Princeton um, by being really good at um, taking tests and doing what people tell you to do. And so it's very natural to look for new opportunities that are very highly structured. Mm-hmm. And The thing about the banking consulting track or apply to law school is that it just, it fits that model, right? Like if you, I have not been a Princeton undergraduate, but I assume it's not that different. It's like, if you go to the Office of Career Services and you say to them, like, tell me what I have to do to get a consulting job. They'll be like, here's what you have to do. Here are the consulting events. Like here, you know here's the internships you apply for right and so that's very appealing and it's natural that a lot of people do that and i don't think you should like necessarily like direct hate their way at the same time i would encourage everyone to um think a little bit outside those boxes um so my friend tim um he went to yale so he's a neutral uh (laughs) observer he you know um was a philosophy major, just like I was. And he really liked philosophy. So he applied to philosophy PhD programs, even though the job outlook for philosophy PhDs is bad. And he did that for years. And then he was in postdocs. And then he couldn't get a tenure-track job in philosophy. And so what he wound up doing was working in finance, um, just like everybody else. And that's... Maybe it would have been better if he was a... But the point is, is like... um, Those companies that just like hire Ivy League grads by the truckload, like they'll just go hire you later. You know, um, I have lots of friends who dabbled in journalism for a few years and decided it wasn't for them. And then they went to law school or consulting or whatever else, right? Like those doors remain open. And so it is not, you know, wrong to try something new with your life. Um, I think for people who listen to this show, you know, if you're interested in politics, you should consider working in politics directly. You should also consider, though, actually working on uh, the topic that is of interest to you, depending on what that topic is, right? But like, if you're really passionate about climate change, like doing technical work for a company that like does something related to zero carbon energy or electrification, like, can be really valuable. Like, the technological breakthroughs have been more important, I think, to climate progress than any, like, really awesome organizing topics. Not that the organizing and the politics isn't important, but, like, everything that's been done on that front has been, I think, a little, um, like, obvious. Like, people know, right, that, like, emphasize that it'll create good jobs. Like, like that's the right strategy, but like everybody always knew it was the right strategy. It's not that hard to come up with, whereas like making Teslas is like, that's a challenging task and and we could use more smart people working on that. You know, I like, I know a guy who like he, I, I don't know, I met him recently. He works for a company that is like trying to provide better banking services to people in Africa. Um, his company may be garbage, you know? But like, if it works, that will make a lot of people's lives better. Whereas like working at a nonprofit and putting out like a PDF that's like, it would be better if people in Africa had access to financial services. It's like, well, people know that it would be better if they had access to financial services. It's like, do it, right? Like, it's it's hard, though. And, and I think that, um, you know, it, it just it's it's good to. Challenge yourself in the sense of take on a task that is challenging rather than take on a challenge that is incredibly well-structured uh, because, you know, you've gotten where you are by succeeding at these well-structured tasks. Um, but the biggest challenges are the ones that that aren't that well-structured, um, but they need smart, hardworking, ambitious people working on them.
0: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Uh, I think that's a, a great piece of advice. And I think like heading into that space, like Mm -hmm. if you want to kind of address an unstructured challenge, there are a lot of like academic tracks and classes Mm -hmm. that are like do provide very structured challenges. Yep. So if you want to like expand your capacity to break out of kind of the... Yeah. You (laughs) got to
1: subscribe to the top newsletters. Right. Listen to podcasts.
0: Exactly. Like subscribe to Slow Boring, all of that. Um. But what kind of opportunities would you suggest that college students seek out while they're here? What kind of classes, clubs, mm-hmm, internships mm-hmm. do you think prepare uh, someone to address that kind of more open, you know, big idea challenge in like a technical way?
1: You know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to be fully prepared for right. anything. I, I think it's worth thinking about, you know, even though you're in college, you can always think about, like, okay, if I had to learn about this without taking a class. How difficult would I find that to be, right? So I took two classes on French history when I was in college because I'm really interested in French history. Now, on reflection, since graduating college, I've also read several books on French history because I'm interested in it. And I feel like that's a very effective way for me to learn French history. Like pick up a book that people say is good, I read it, I remember what it says. Um, since leaving college, I've also tried to learn R, the statistical and graphic uh, sort of visualization software, which didn't exist when I was in college. Um, but I I can't fucking do it, you know? And I think that that was foreseeable, that like if I took a class, and I think that I will at some point when my kid is older, like just like actually enroll in a course where I have to show up and I get homework assignments. And it's gonna be a little weird for this like middle-aged guy to be doing it. but because there are certain things where if anything, having the professor and the TAs and stuff there is helpful. But there are certain subjects where it's like, this is the difference between I can do it and I can't do it. And just like, eh, it's nice to have this guy around. And, you know, try to use your course time to learn things that you know in your heart you like wouldn't be able to pick up on your own. Because the vast majority of life happens after you leave school, and like you can always learn more stuff. Um, but you got to like, what what can I only do here? Mm-hmm. Um, then the other thing is like you know, especially at the at the 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 snazziest schools, like they have a lot of good events. Like I'm not going to say that like you know the key to the future of your life is to like come to my book talk or or the lunch that that we met at earlier today, but it's like there's a lot of people coming to the Princeton campus in any given week and doing different things and like try to go to the ones that seem interesting or that have people doing something that seems important. And, you know, you get the chance to like ask them stuff and and see what they have to say. And that's, a it's like extracurricular, you know, quote unquote, but it's like a big part of the unique value add that like the really prestigious schools, uh, offer is that they, they bring people in and, and you can learn stuff that isn't like faculty stuff, but that they are facilitating.
0: Absolutely. Um, well, I think that's a great place to, to leave it off. Fantastic. Um, So we always end our podcasts by asking for our guests punchline. Uh, so, you know, if there's one big idea that you'd like to leave our audience with, uh, you know, what would it be? We've been all over the place. Usually, it's like we have a policy idea, and you're like, "Here's what we've said." <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know.
1: I don't know that I that I that I, that I have a toe punchline. No, um, you know, look, um, I'm trying to synthesize all of this, but like, don't just make you know privilege checking or whatever a kind of like buzzword in your life. Like, take seriously the fact that you have. Opportunities that are available to you that most people don't have, and that you should like try to make something of those opportunities. That, you know, elite opinion and elite persuasion are very important, that technical work is very important, that you um, are somewhat insulated against the downsides of failure. If you do something that is risky, you can always bounce back and do something safer, you know, and it's like, don't, don't like spend your life like, apologizing or, like, feeling guilty or something about that stuff, but, like, take it seriously and and try to uh, leverage those privileges on behalf of things that you think are important and that will, you know, keep the democratic system functioning and keep the economy growing and make the environment sustainable and solve the big problems
0: of our time. Absolutely. I think it's a great place to leave it off. All right. Thank Thank you you so much for joining us today. Awesome. Anything you want to plug? Uh,
1: Check out Bad Takes. Uh, It's available wherever fine podcasts are sold. SlowBoring.com is my newsletter. Matt Iglesias on Twitter. Um, My book, One Billion Americans.
0: Absolutely. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.